Porter, and uh, I'm just filling in for Dave this week. Dave Barry and his family are home, uh, home sick this week, and good news is they're doing well, but it's kind of working its way through their whole family, but uh, it's my actual pleasure to be here serving the church I love this morning, so thanks for coming out. Just a couple of reminder announcements. Um, next next hour, 11 o'clock, love for you guys to uh, go out and support, uh, show some support for Martha Gushy as she shares what's going on at IBC. Martha, sorry I won't be able to be there, but thanks for uh, doing that. And then also uh, this week, we're not going to have children's Sunday school upstairs uh, just um, due to just lack of teachers for the week. Some people are out sick. Lord willing, we'll resume that uh, next week, okay? So I know Sam just led us in prayer, but why don't we just bow our heads and hearts and uh, commit this to the Lord, if you would. Lord Jesus, uh, I appeal to you. We appeal to you on the basis that uh, you promise that you will grow your church. So Lord Jesus, uh, we ask that you expose to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, to use now the hearing of your word to expose to us areas where we need to grow in how we live our lives in this community at FCF. Father, please show us um, ways that we may not be contributing to the overall health of this church. Father, I ask that you prevent uh, this message from just coming across as a list of uh, to-dos Rather, uh, let us see, Father, that how we live our lives should reflect and be motivated by the work that was accomplished by you, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Ask that you use this time to the end of giving us a greater reverence, and as Sam prayed, a greater sense of treasuring the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that you have done for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, I chose to, to teach from the book of Philemon this morning, um, in part because I rarely hear anyone reference uh, this book. And uh, I feel as though this letter written by Paul has huge implications for how we should live our lives um, in light of the gospel. And as we said, that hopefully to the end that we treasure the gospel more. So I would actually invite you to turn to Philemon. It's a little book, so if you aim for Hebrews, which is a bigger target, you can go left one book and you'll, uh, you'll see it. I would say that if there's any uh, concept of the Christian life that I personally have been meditating on as of late, it's been the question, what does a gospel-transformed life look like? I've been asking that of myself personally uh, in my walk with Jesus as I work through what it means to be an elder here at this local church, and I've been asking that corporately of our church as well. So I do have a goal this morning. I have the goal of challenging us, challenging all of us, as I've been challenged in the preparation of this message. And uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will bring to our hearts, through the hearing of his word taught a question. And that question that I'd like to put before us is this. How should the transforming power of the gospel be displayed in our lives, individually and corporately? 
How should the transforming power of the gospel be displayed in our lives, both individually and corporately? So in understanding that a church is a whole that is composed of the sum of its parts, I think the truths found in Philemon have implications for us as individuals, as well as there being application of this book to our our corporate life at FCF. And if you're here as a visitor, uh, it is my prayer that you can take the challenge of today's message back to your church and that it may impact the way you live out your Christian life in your local gathering. So the majority of our time today is going to consist of observing and interpreting the book in its entirety, all 25 verses, and I'm going to conclude with some questions of application that I hope may be helpful in applying the text to our individual and corporate lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, we have 13 books written by the Apostle Paul. While only four were written to individuals, that would be 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and this book of Philemon. The other nine books uh, were were written to churches and were meant to address specific needs in those specific churches, as well as uh, the multitudes of generations like us uh, since the writing of the New Testament. So the nine epistles that were intended were intended to be read in front of the whole congregation and actually were intended to be circulated throughout the churches. So we have here, though, in the book of Philemon, a very personal letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon, who was evidently a wealthy member of the Church of Colossae. And we say this because the church apparently met in Philemon's house, as well as the fact that he had at least one slave by the name of Onesimus, and while these letters don't have, uh, they don't come with time stamps, we're going to uh, date the writing of this letter to be between 60 and 62 AD, uh, and it's one of what we call the prison epistles. So Paul most likely wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then Philemon during uh, what we refer to as his first Roman imprisonment. So we read in Acts 28, that this is a uh, a house arrest situation where the apostles were allowed visitors, where Paul was allowed visitors. And we can contrast this with, for instance, the writing of 2 Timothy, which um, was Paul's last letter, which obviously occurred after um, these letters we just referred to, the prison epistles. It was during his final incarceration in Rome, And it's widely accepted that Paul uh, was not released from that before his execution. So since Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon at the same time, and there's a lot of uh, overlap between these two books, they both deal with the same church, it would seem natural to to read both of them at the same time. However, in the interest of time, we're not going to read both of them, but I would uh, encourage you to read Colossians in its entirety uh, soon, actually. So, Paul wrote the book of Philemon as an intimate letter to a dear friend, urging him to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus. And apparently, Paul sent the actual letter of Colossians and the actual letter of Philemon in the hands of his protege, Timothy, 
and in the hands of the repentant runaway slave Onesimus to be hand-delivered to the church and to be hand-delivered to Philemon. So, let's read Philemon together, starting in verse 1. It reads, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, in the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have delivered or derived rather much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also, for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but have you out of, or but be of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, as we uh, look at the book today, again, I'd like to draw our attention to one main question, which is how should the transforming power of the gospel be displayed in our lives, both corporately and individually? So we're going to go through four points today. Uh, First one would be uh, Philemon, a beloved fellow worker. 
Point two would be a gospel-centered life results in a change of motive. Three, a gospel-centered life results in a change of identity, change of identity. And then four, gospel-centered life results in a change of behavior, change of motive, change of identity, change of behavior. So in an effort to uh, understand the book better, let's first take a look into the life and character of uh, Philemon. be verses 1 through 7. Now, if we were to survey Paul's letters, uh, we would find that there are some relationships that would be described as painful to Paul, such as Alexander the coppersmith, Hymenaeus, Philetus, but that's not what we have here with Philemon. Paul refers to Philemon as a beloved fellow worker. Now, this is a warm relationship pictured here between two brothers in Christ. Now, the letter really doesn't have any explicit doctrinal teachings such as are found in other epistles, like Colossians, uh, which we'll look at, or Romans, for instance, but Paul just assumes that Philemon knows them. So Philemon is a man that is transformed by the gospel and who is living out his gospel, living out the gospel in his life in line with Luke 10:27 which says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself that characterizes Philemon so Paul's description of Philemon in verse 5 tells us that he's a source of great encouragement to the apostle as he recalls Philemon's love that he's displayed toward the Lord Jesus and to all the saints And in verse 7, he tells us that this gospel love doesn't just uh, go out from Philemon, but it's actually received from those who he interacts with. I couldn't think of a better description of anyone, and Lord willing, that would be the description of us. So verse 7 says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Again, that's my prayer for this church. So Philemon uh, was no doubt saved under Paul's bringing of him, bringing to him the gospel, as we see in verse 19. So the reports that uh, Paul has received about this beloved man Philemon just warms Paul's heart. So this is a warm letter from one saint to another that is founded on a mutual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and shows us that Philemon is grounded in gospel love toward others. So as we think of what it means to live a life that is molded and shaped by the gospel of Christ, let's consider three ways uh, that the gospel results in a changed life. The first one being our second point, which is a gospel-centered life results in a change of motive. That would be 8 to 14. Now, if we were to compare some of the opening lines of uh, most of Paul's epistles, we would see that there's a predominant theme of, uh, of Paul calling attention to his role as an apostle. There is a, a sense of ascribed glory 
or ascribed authority, rather, to his to this title that that almost makes you like sit up straighter in your in your chair when you when you hear it. So this recognition of his apostolic authority uh, was required as there were situations where his teaching was called into question by those who sought to undermine his character or his motives or his authority displayed, for instance, uh, in First and Second Corinthians, the Church of Corinth, as well as uh, the churches in the region of Galatia. And we also see this authority displayed, again, in, for instance, First Second Corinthians, where Paul, in, Paul knows and Paul intends to, to draw the listeners and the readers' attention to areas of correction that needed to take place in that church. So he needed to preload that with the fact that I am the Apostle Paul, and with my authority I'm telling you and teaching you how to, uh, how to live and how to grow. But here in this letter of Philemon, Paul doesn't even use the word apostle at all. 25 verses, and he doesn't use the word. We don't see Paul flex, so to speak. As a matter of fact, we see Paul refer to himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This displays someone who has had his rights and privileges taken away. It shows a man who is under the authority of another, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 18 and to 14 are bracketed by Paul's attempt to, to motivate Philemon to behave in such a way that is consistent with his character. So in verse 8, we read, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... And then again in down, down in 14, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. So Paul here is making an appeal on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon to forgive his runaway slave. And he's not motivating Philemon on the basis of what he's required to do Rather, he's attempting to motivate him to action on the basis of what the Lord has done for Philemon in Christ. So we learn in this letter that Onesimus ran away from Philemon, and we can assume that he was not a believer at the time he ran away. We can also conclude from verse 18 Uh, that he may have uh, ripped some stuff off, may have stolen something from Philemon before he left. So as Onesimus ran from his master, he naturally ran to the place where, where he could disappear, the big city, right? And in this case, the big city was Rome. And in the providence of God, it doesn't tell us here how, but he ended up running into the Apostle Paul who was under house arrest, as we said, in Rome. So it's here that Onesimus heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed and got saved. This is how Paul can refer to Onesimus as his uh, child in the faith and how Paul is now his spiritual father. 
And we know from verse 13 that it would have been Paul's desire to keep Onesimus near him in Rome as he considered Onesimus as someone who would be useful to the cause of the gospel there. Uh, The city, no doubt, had quite a population of slaves, either freed or run away, and perhaps Onesimus, being a slave himself, could have afforded uh, a natural, natural gospel inroads, if you will, to that community. So Paul is showing Philemon how much of a sacrifice Paul is making by sending Onesimus back to his master. And by doing so, he's motivating Philemon to respond to this situation and to forgive Onesimus according to what should be done in line with Christian virtue, but not by compulsion. So in first century terms, slavery was not like we think of slavery in the West. Um, It should be seen as more of like an employer-employee relationship. Uh, Given what we know of Philemon, Onesimus' slavery was probably not a burden. It, It was actually probably a blessing working for Philemon. But going back to Colossae, to hand deliver this message, it could have cost him his life. We need to consider the implications for Philemon here as well. So slave uprisings were not unheard of. Uh, If Philemon were to accept Onesimus back without severe punishment to his rebellion, uh, this could send a message to the watching world That would reflect a lack of authority on Philemon's part and potentially motivate other slaves to do the same as Onesimus did. So when Paul appealed to Philemon to simply forgive Onesimus on account of it being that which a follower of Christ is called to do, we need to understand that that's a tall ask. I'd ask you to turn to Colossians here if you will. Colossians 1. So before we consider the actual uh, behavioral changes that are linked to a life that is changed by the gospel, we need first to consider who the God is who changes our lives from one who is walking in darkness to one who is walking in his marvelous light. So we have Philemon, who is encouraged to forgive, even if it results in a perceived lack of authority to anyone who observes him. And we have Onesimus, who's risking his life. Incidentally, that is the punishment for a runaway slave. Could include losing your life by returning to his master. But the motive that underlies these actions is bound up first in understanding who God is. This is a pattern we often see in Paul's letters, uh, namely that he develops the doctrinal case first and then shows how our actions and behavior should should flow out of these these, uh, doctrinal truths. So I'd like to read actually Colossians 1, uh, verses 1 through... uh, Actually, no, 15 through 23. First, uh, Colossians... 
chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, He, namely Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So before the Apostle Paul exhorts the readers to action, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul, you got to go through the gate of, of chapter 1. Paul is fixing our attention on God himself. God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, who created and controls everything that ever was and ever will be. Jesus Christ is seen as the ultimate sustainer, sustainer of the universe, sent at the right time to reconcile to God a world tainted and contaminated and affected by sin and death back to himself by his achievement at the cross. And God's word tells us that we too were aliens to God because of our sin and were hostile toward God because of our sin, which broke our relationship with God. So Paul is drawing us into the glorious reality that those who trust in Jesus Christ alone to restore a broken relationship have been saved not merely for our ultimate benefit, although, of course, we'll benefit for all eternity from from that, but so that we may be presented as perfect and spotless before him to bring joy to the Savior who created us. So in Philemon, in in an economy of words, Paul is motivating Philemon, and by extension us, as he has already apparently motivated Onesimus to do, to action. So not by handing down uh, an apostolic authority to-do list, rather he's appealing to Philemon to do what would be consistent with the character of someone who's been saved by grace. So how should the transforming power of the gospel 
be evident in the life of a believer, a life that is changed by the power of the gospel results in a change of motive. So when Jesus Christ comes into one's life, now there should be a desire to please the one who saved you. As opposed to one's action being driven by uh, compulsion or, or fear or guilt or duty. Okay, it brings us to point number three. So a gospel-centered life results in a change of identity. Change of identity in verse 15 to 17. So something amazing happens when one is drawn by the Holy Spirit to acknowledge that their sinfulness is an affront to God's holiness. When someone by faith realizes that there is no human work that can be done to restore that broken relationship. And that the work has been done for us on the cross. There is a vertical change in identity that happens in the eyes of God. Consider uh, Paul's words to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Our brother uh, Andy giving his testimony a a couple weeks ago uh, referred us to this passage that was great. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Then down in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now, but now, amen, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So as we've said already by God's providence, Onesimus ran away, ran into the imprisoned Paul, and upon hearing the good news of salvation in Christ, God in his goodness caused him to believe and he got saved. Incidentally, that's the pattern for all of us, anyone here who has, are walking uh, with Christ as Christians. God did the work. And like Onesimus there occurred a change of of identity. In God's eyes, the Christian is no longer characterized uh, by his or her sin. Rather, the perfection and righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed 
or credited to the believer. So now God sees our guilt as as covered. Actually removed by Jesus' blood. By faith in Christ, God now sees our identity as righteous as that of Jesus Christ. So there is a, a heavenly change of identity, if you will. But, but there's also a horizontal, earthly change of identity, as we see in Philemon 15 and 16, which says, For this perhaps is why he, referring to Onesimus, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So what Paul is showing Philemon is that when Onesimus got saved, their earthly relationship, or that horizontal relationship, if you will, changed from being not only that of a master-slave relationship, but now to being that of brothers in Christ. The apostle is, is appealing to Philemon to recognize that it could be that the Lord allowed him to lose his slave, lose whatever Onesimus ganked or stole from him before he ran away in order that he may gain a fellow brother in Christ. So by all earthly standards, Philemon had the right to punish Onesimus for the injustice committed against him. But Paul is appealing to Philemon to see that as a life transformed vertically by the gospel results in a horizontal laying aside of one's right rights, rather, for a greater gospel purpose. In this case, Paul is asking him to forgive Onesimus, and not only forgive him, but to accept him back as he would the Apostle Paul himself. The gospel changes people. So as Onesimus' identity is now as someone who is in Christ, Philemon is being encouraged as an act of love that is in line with the standard of his own character to display the gospel in his life and see his runaway slave as a brother. In the same way that the prodigal son, the younger son, was accepted back by the father with open arms, Paul is urging Philemon to take Onesimus back brings us to our fourth point. A gospel-centered life results in a change of behavior. Results in a change of behavior. That'd be 18, 19, and 20. As recipients of gospel grace, we must recognize our own sins. And by His grace see our sins as an affront to God's holiness. Scripture teaches us that all human beings are sinners. As we read in Romans 3, starting in 3.9, Paul says, 
What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then down to 20, uh, verse 23, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we read of the just punishment that we deserve for our sins in Romans 6.23, which reads, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the penalty we deserve for our sinfulness, it's death. and Not just a physical death, although that is a result of the curse, but this also refers to an eternal separation from God as a result of our sin. It's essential that we see ourselves as God sees us. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we embrace uh, the doctrine of Penal substitutionary atonement. Dave referenced this last week. This refers to Jesus Christ's crucifixion as being adequate, an adequate sacrificial substitute for the sin debt that we accrue as a result of our rebellion to God. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 24, he says, He, meaning Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So the Bible teaches us that Christ took the penalty for anyone who comes to God by faith in the substitutionary death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So without Christ paying this debt, with his own life, that penalty for our sin would still be held to our account in the eyes of God. So in order for that debt to be canceled, it needs to be paid for by something outside ourselves. So here in Philemon, in verse 18, we have a human display of this substitution. Paul is asking Philemon to charge any penalty that has been accumulated by Onesimus for his wrongdoing to Paul's account. In 18 he writes, if he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So Paul is reminding Philemon that the debt that he owes, Philemon owes to Paul, because Paul was the human agent used by the hand of God to save Philemon. God did the saving. God used Paul. Make that, make that clear. No doubt Paul shared the uh, gospel with Philemon at some point in the past, and Philemon was granted eternal forgiveness for his many sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So Paul's not trying to guilt Philemon into forgiving Onesimus. Rather, by way of reminder, he's drawing his attention to the fact that Philemon has been forgiven. And on the basis of that forgiveness that has been extended to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's calling Philemon to forgive his runaway slave. So the tool of remembering our own forgiveness, which we're going to do in a few moments by taking the Lord's Supper, can be a powerful tool in the hand of God through the Holy Spirit to motivate us to forgive others when we're wronged. We don't want to be like the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18, 23 through 35. You can read it on your own. We're not going to read it now. It's a parable of a man that was forgiven a debt that is described as one that he's unable to repay. Then, after being released of this astronomical debt, he went out and demanded repayment from a fellow uh, servant who owed him uh, a fraction of what he'd been forgiven. I'd ask you to turn back to Colossians, if you would. Colossians chapter 3. So we almost get a sense of uh, amnesia sometimes when we are wronged, when we have an offense committed against us, or we feel as though we've been wronged, and we fall into this mindset of unforgiveness. But when we fix our eyes on the gospel in the cross of Jesus Christ, we should remember that we've been forgiven. We've been forgiving a debt that we could never repay. So when the spiritual discipline of rehearsing the gospel to ourselves is evident in our lives, it should have an effect. It should have the effect of motivating us to put off the old self and put on a heart of obedience. In this case, forgiving others. So let's read Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 15. Actually, I can't cut it off at 15 because 16 and 17 are that good. So let's go to 17. Colossians 3, 1. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And I had to tack these last two on for for Bo. It's my pleasure to do so. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts, in your hearts, to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. So again, we see this vertical change that happens as a result of of the transforming work of the gospel in one's life, that results in a horizontal change in how we relate to one another, or it should. So in Philemon verse 20, uh, we read how Philemon, forgiving Onesimus, would not only be a blessing to those two men, but it would bring joy to the Apostle Paul. So we live our Christian lives in community. Or we should anyway. When we are obedient to scripture, in this case resisting, resisting the sin of unforgiveness and displaying a heart that is eager to forgive, we bring joy to the onlooker. When I am made aware of someone's obedience to scripture, it just warms my heart. And it, and it serves to encourage me to go out and do the same. So we need to realize that if we're to override the fleshly tendencies in our lives, in this case, obediently forgiving someone who has wronged us, that needs to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Those who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ have new motives new identities resulting in transformed behavior, all housed within a body, and here's the problem, that has indwelling sin remaining. This reality of a Colossians 3, put off the old uh, and put on Christ, changed life, it's ironically fueled by something outside ourselves that has been given to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, namely the Holy Spirit. May I suggest that we be a people who pray specifically to God to override our sinful flesh and through acts of obedience find joy for ourselves as well as our obedience being a source of joy 
for one another in pleasing our Savior. Now, we also must remember that gospel forgiveness involves action not only on the part of uh, the one who forgives, but also the one who, to whom forgiveness needs to be extended. Now, I know the name of this book is Philemon, but there's another, there's another hero in this story, and that's Onesimus. Here's a runaway slave stole from his master and is now displaying the humility to return to Philemon and hand-deliver a letter from the Apostle Paul urging Philemon to forgive him. So as we live out our lives in in gospel community, we're going to find ourselves often in either one of, of those two positions. The one who needs to forgive or being in the position of the one who needs to seek forgiveness. And both require gospel-centered humility. So we have in this short letter a story. Two guys who've been transformed by the redeeming power of the gospel. And we also have a challenge to us here this morning to apply the truths portrayed in this short letter in our lives individually and corporately. One of these men displayed repentance for his sins by returning and facing the potential consequence of his sinful actions and sought forgiveness. And the other man is reminded of how someone who's remembering the forgiveness given to him by the gospel should respond to the offense committed against him. Now, Philemon's response to Onesimus' bravery and humility is not recorded in Scripture, so we can't say this with 100% confidence, uh, but I have no doubt he responded in a godly way. Paul writes in verse 21, Philemon's forgiving Onesimus would have been consistent with the character that he's already displayed. And as if the reminder that Paul gives Philemon of the unpayable debt that was forgiven him was not motivation enough, Paul asks, Paul asks Philemon to prepare a room for him. So Paul hopes to visit his house sometime in the future. We don't know if this happened or not. This was not Paul's final imprisonment, so it could have happened. Here, though, we do have a reminder that as Christians, we are not only accountable to God for our actions, but we're also accountable to each other as we are part of a greater gospel community. So Paul ends this letter in verses 23 to 25 by painting a picture to Philemon and to us of the gospel partnership that exists between this team that's separated by space and circumstance the use of the words fellow prisoner and fellow workers displays this uh, Philippians 1.27 desire of Paul and by extension us, which is unity and labor for the same gospel goal. Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
So by way of application, I would just like to put a few questions in front of us. And the first is by far the most important, which is, have I placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of my many sins? Living out a life that's transformed by the gospel flows out of getting this question right. The Bible describes God as being just, which refers to God in his perfect holiness, not allowing sins which are ultimately committed against him to go unpunished. It's been the plan of God from the foundation of the world to provide a sacrifice onto which his wrath against sin is to be placed, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in the Old uh, Testament sacrificial system where the Israelites were to sacrifice an innocent lamb as the God-ordained way of, of covering their sins. Only those sacrifices could only cover it. They didn't remove it. So we read of the testimony of John the Baptist as he describes Jesus Christ in John 1.29. We, we studied this in the not-too-recent uh, past. John the Baptist says, The next day he, John the Baptist, well, John wrote it of John the Baptist. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're here today and you have not trusted in the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ as the God-ordained method for taking away the just punishment for your sins, our prayer is that God in his mercy will reveal to you the eternal need to have your sins forgiven. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that a just God will still require payment for sins, although the payment happens by an eternal separation from him forever. So the most pressing question for all of us is whether that payment has been placed on Jesus Christ through faith in him or does that responsibility for payment remain on you to be paid for by you being separated eternally from God. Another question of application, since the gospel has changed my vertical relationship with God, is that showing itself in a change in my horizontal uh, relationship with those around me? We are all in grave danger of forgetting the many sins that have been forgiven us in Christ. It's an unfortunate byproduct of this forgetfulness that it interferes with our willingness to forgive the perceived injustices committed against us. I urge you, I implore you as myself, in other words, I implore you and myself to examine our hearts in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas where this may be the case. I also encourage you to ask for the humility needed to change where appropriate. Another question. Am I harboring unforgiveness toward anyone that is hindering gospel unity here at FCF? 
The sin of unforgiveness feeds this like this fleshly monster in us. And it should not be named among us. If there's anything that goes more against gospel unity for which Jesus Christ died, I don't know what it could be. Another question, final one. Am I in need of pursuing forgiveness from anyone that would result in furthering the gospel unity here at FCF? We all offend others. We all offend people. We all act out in our sinful flesh toward members of our families, toward members of our church. And although there is an ultimate defeat of sin by the risen Jesus Christ, there is also indwelling sin within us. This should serve to remind us of our ongoing need for the truths of the gospel to sink deep in our sinful hearts. We have the responsibility not only to preach the gospel uh, to others, but we have the responsibility to remind and preach the gospel to ourselves. Again, if the Holy Spirit is revealing to you a need to seek forgiveness, as he did for Onesimus, it's an act of trust and humility to go to that brother or sister and pursue that forgiveness. So I'll just uh, I'm going to simply end by reading the words, Paul's words, uh, to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, 21 through 23. So Paul writes, I... Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Lord, I ask, we ask, that you make us treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. When we are tempted to react to others in ways that reflect that we are forgetting how we have been forgiven of our many sins, I pray that you break into our sinful hearts, please, and remind us of what you've done for us. Please give us eyes to see by your Holy Spirit where we may need to grow in regard to the way we are living out our Christian lives in this church. And even today I ask that you may give us the courage, like Onesimus, to pursue reconciliation and the Christian character, like Philemon, to be willing to forgive on the basis of what you've done for us on our behalf at the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to take a few moments.